the challenge is how we make sure that the level of giving doesn't change, but the thoughtfulness and the engagement with the issues improves. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. I often lament that doing good is not done well enough and talk about the need to pay more attention to the why, the how, and the impact of doing good. I'm a strong proponent of not engaging in the act of doing good unless you have a deep knowledge and understanding of the cause that you're wanting to support. But behind all this doing good is a deeper problem, one that challenges our willingness to do good in a meaningful and connected way. It's the question of civic engagement. My guest today is Andrew Lee, co-author of the book Reconnected and Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities within the Australian Labor Party. In Reconnected, Andrew tells us of the overall decline in civic engagement across all domains, including involvement in community associations, membership of political parties, union membership, and participation in organized religion. We have less close friends, we give less, we volunteer less, and we vote less than ever before. Reconnected calls for more engagement in helping, giving, and volunteering as ways to increase social cohesion and resilience in order to improve outcomes for all Australians. As I was reading Andrew's book, it occurred to me that while both Andrew and I are calling for more involvement in doing good, we're doing so with a slightly different lens. When Andrew speaks of the need for more engagement in doing good, I speak of the need for caution and for ensuring that you don't cause further harm. When Andrew speaks of the need for systems to be in place to transform spontaneous altruism into a lasting volunteering ethos, I talk about the need to examine spontaneous altruism itself. Needless to say, Andrew and I had a wonderfully robust conversation about the tensions in doing good. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Andrew. G'day, Lee. Great to be with you. I hadn't ever expected that I would be interviewed by somebody whose first name is my last name and who has a podcast called The Good Problem when I host The Good Life. It's almost like talking to a smarter version of myself. (laughs) I I could say the same in reverse, actually. Hardly. Andrew, it's wonderful to have you here. I'm going to jump in and ask you something I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? So I'm very influenced by my late grandfather, who was a Methodist minister and who had this notion that a life lived in service to others is a life well lived. And that's the philosophy that my mum and dad raised me on, and it's very much the way I think about the world. I try and ask my kids over dinner each day, what did you do to make someone else happy? Because I think that one of the secrets to living a contented, full life is not just to think, what did I do today that made me happy, but to think about what did I do that made other people happy? Absolutely. Do you think of doing good as something that you express in daily life, no matter what it is that you're doing, or is it more something that you make a conscious 
effort to do, whether it's through your work or through your community life? Ideally, being a politician is about making a positive difference in the community around you. There's a whole lot of work that politicians do that people don't notice, following up on visas, explaining policies where people just aren't sure what's going on. And then there's the sort of policy advocacy work, which involves arguing for ideas that you think will you know, long-term make Australia a better place, making the case for better competition policies or better multinational tax policies or better education policies. I think of that very much in the space of making the world a better place, although it, it's more long-term. When I was an academic, I used to really envy medical research colleagues who would get to help patients in the morning and then research long-term challenges in the afternoon. I always thought that mix was terrific because it gave you that short-term payoff as well as the long-term investment Uh, and at its best politics can be like that too. Yeah yeah definitely. Andrew what made you make the move from academia to politics? Well unless you think you get to live multiple lives you want to live the most interesting and diverse life possible and I had really enjoyed working as an academic but got into the stage where it was pretty clear that I wasn't going to be winning a Nobel Prize and transforming the discipline of economics. So when the chance came up to run for uh, politics, I thought, well, that's something I've always been interested in, taking your understanding of issues like inequality and poverty and working on those at a national stage. That was pretty exciting. And, and I've never regretted the transition. Politics is the most interesting and, and diverse job I've ever done, endlessly rewarding and rewarding in, in ways that I never really expected. So, Lee, you know, I think about the 80-year-old woman who approached me saying that her garden of native plants was going awry and she couldn't find a good gardener who understood native plants. Now, I just caught up with the head of Greening Australia ACT, so I was able to reach out to him and say, who do you recommend who'd be good as a native plant gardener? Hooked the guy up with the elderly woman who'd contacted me, uh, and she wrote back a week later saying, I love my new gardener. My garden is fantastic. Now, no one goes into politics in order to find a gardener for an 80-year-old constituent, but when you're able to build a connection like that, it's enormously rewarding. So a lot of what I've found myself doing in politics is about connecting people. And that brings me to the title of your most recent book, Reconnected, which I've just finished recently. And I, I want to say it's a fabulous read. What motivated you to write that book? Ten years ago, I'd written a book called Disconnected, which was more academic, more focused on the problem. It was inspired by working on Robert Putnam's research team at Harvard just after he'd brought out Bowling Alone, which had documented the collapse in civic society in America from the 1960s to 2000. Disconnected did much the same for Australia, talking about how we had a significant problem in community engagement across politics, religion, workplace, social capital, and even interpersonal social capital. And in Reconnected, Nick Terrell and I update the data on the decline, uh, sadly find that the last decade has, if anything, been a worse decade for social capital than the ones that immediately preceded it, and then talk about what we can do to rebuild. We explore volunteering, social purpose, politics, sport, and look right across the Australian community at a range of fabulous social entrepreneurs who are doing great work bucking the trend of declining civic engagement. And we also try and draw out the lessons of those groups and those individuals. So we're not just storytelling, but we're also looking more systematically at what a civic renaissance would involve. I'm curious, in your opinion, what is the reason behind this decline in civic engagement? 
Part of it's technology, car commuting, uh, television use, video games, smartphones are enormously convenient, but they're also depersonalizing. We've seen a, a rise in workforce participation, particularly the large-scale entry of women into the paid workforce, which is a terrific development for Australia. But what it's meant is that half the population who was disproportionately keeping a lot of our community groups going in the 1950s and 1960s are now in the labour market facing an employment market that has much less discrimination. The solution is different from the problem. The causes were uh, in part due to technologies and social shifts, which most of us welcome. And the challenge now is how to build community in an environment uh, which is less sexist, less racist, less homophobic and more technologically engaged than the Australia of the past. Can technology be a force for positive social engagement? Sure can. We have this notion of uh, cyber connecting, the use of technology to encourage face-to-face -face interaction rather than to supplant it. When the coronavirus crisis hit, Catherine Barrett set up the Kindness Pandemic Facebook page in which she sought to push back against the TV stories of people fighting over the last toilet paper roll in the supermarket by telling the stories of people who had stepped up in the grocery store to pay the bill of the person in front of them in line when they'd forgotten their wallets. The story of the woman who dropped off a coffee to her neighbour every day who was having to uh, homeschool the kids and was looking pretty stressed. And the kindness pandemic also motivated helpers, calling, for example, on people to step in and assist with antenatal classes for expectant mums whose antenatal classes had been cancelled. It's a great use of technology to connect rather than to divide. The book covers topics of deep interest to me, in particular philanthropy and volunteering. And while the book is pretty Australia-centric, obviously, many of the topics are relevant globally. As I was reading, something struck me. While you and I share a motivation for more good to be done in the world, our lenses on looking at the issue of good are slightly different. You know, on one hand, you're calling for more engagement in helping, giving and volunteering as a way to improve that overall social cohesion and resilience. And I'm also calling for more engagement in those things, but with more caution and responsibility and accountability for the impact that we have when we engage in these actions. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's vital to be thinking about what impact you're having. And as an economist, I'm always thinking about counterfactuals. What would the world look like if you weren't doing this particular activity? I'm really struck by how this plays out in the sphere of effective altruism. One of the principles of effective altruism is you should think about the direct impact you're having. And that's led in part to the uh, earning to give model. Suppose you're choosing between being a doctor or a philanthropic banker. If you weren't a doctor, then chances are someone else would have taken that spot. And so the good you're doing is not adding another doctor to the world. It's your skill at being a doctor versus the skill of the other person who would otherwise have been a doctor, because there's a fixed number of spots at most medical schools. However, if you're a philanthropic banker, chances are now you can give enough money to keep a couple of charity workers in employment who wouldn't have otherwise had that job. So your good is the work that those charity workers do. Earning to give might actually be more effective than direct philanthropic action. Uh, it's controversial, uh, but I think it ought to be a philosophy that we take on more broadly.
Absolutely. And and we've had Peter Singer, who's behind the effective altruism movement on this podcast, talking about these things. And there is a bigger place for more thinking around the impact that we have and doing the most good we can with what we have and more reflection on where our skills and resources and influence can change things. But I, I do tend to step back a little bit and say, well, emotion and connection are a huge part of engaging in doing good. And we can't ignore that they exist. They motivate people to do good. So where is the middle ground here? How do we get people to both engage in doing good, but also consider the impact and be a bit more cautious around where they put those efforts? Yeah, so, I mean, let's take the David Brooks critique. Brooks says, if your profoundest interest is in dying children in Africa or Bangladesh, it's probably best to go to Africa or Bangladesh, not to Wall Street. But I think that dichotomy is too stark. I think it's entirely possible to work on Wall Street and travel to Africa and Bangladesh to maintain a connection with the people you're helping while at the same time managing to raise funds in a way in which you uh, you wouldn't be able to otherwise. And talk about the way in which Atlassian has partnered with a Cambodian literacy charity, A Room to Read. Atlassian also then encourages its staff to fund themselves to go to Cambodia to see the operations of the charity on the ground and, and to directly help out. I think that's a really great practical example of how earning to give can make a real difference. Mm. I heard you speak recently and you mentioned that Social Ventures Australia has said that Australia might lose a fifth of all charities. That's a potential loss of more than 11,000 charities here, the majority of which are likely to be locally focused and grassroots charities. What are the risks in losing this number of charities? It'd be seismic for the Australian community. I mean, the thing is, when you talk to people who run charities, they say they've always thought of large cash reserves as being a bit of a blight on the organisation. You should be out there setting up new programs or expanding your existing ones. So traditionally, organisations have run with fairly slim buffers. They often don't have the sort of assets that can be mortgaged, and so it's difficult for them to take on loans. Suddenly, something like COVID hits. If you're raising a lot of money through face-to-face fundraising, suddenly you find yourself really on the ropes. And that means that we could uh, we could lose charities that are doing innovative work and charities which are serving the most vulnerable at a time when we need more innovation and we need more anti-poverty programs. There's also a risk too that charities don't emerge at a time in which we need it. Pretty much like the business sector, we need constant innovation in charities. We need those new startup charities. Uh, And my fear is that we'll get a bit of a drought in the startups, both in business and in the community sector. So I think it's really important that those charities get the support they need. I've been pleased to see a number of foundations changing their rules about disbursements, recognising that a dollar dispersed in 2020 probably does more good than a dollar dispersed in 2019. But government needs to take the same approach. And would you argue that that needs to continue? That, you know, there needs to be, in some cases, a re-examination of the rules around disbursements and, and acknowledging that for a lot of foundations, these were set decades ago in a very different world. Yeah, I think it's really important for foundations to constantly be working out whether what they're doing is 
something that is distinct from others in the market. If you're a large foundation, I think you have an obligation to make sure you're not simply performing an activity that would otherwise be done by another charity or indeed by a government, but that you're building a whole lot more innovation in. We also want to think about the ideal lifespan of foundations. So I, you know, I think it's interesting to see the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation specifying that that will close 20 years after their deaths. Chuck Feeney, who's uh, set up Atlantic Philanthropies, gave away $8 billion and has a philosophy of giving while living. Chuck says he wants the last check he writes to bounce. And behind that notion is the idea that problems are in some sense time bound. You know, if you think about climate change or transgender rights, these are simply not issues that would have been on the to-do list of a foundation set up 50 years ago. And similarly, we should expect that the problems of 50 years hence won't all be uh, knowable today. So we do need to make sure that foundations are doing good immediately rather than thinking that their priorities will be right forever. I want to pick back up on something you mentioned just then about uh, charities shouldn't be taking the role of government or investing in projects where government should have the responsibility. This is something that um, Peter Singer also argues in his conversations around whether we should give money locally or whether we should give money overseas. He talks about the Australian government having the capacity and resources to adequately fund programs to meet the needs of its own citizens, whereas other governments in the global south, for example, not having the resources to do so, and therefore that being a justification for sending money overseas as opposed to spending it domestically from a charitable perspective what do you think? Personally, the main focus of the philanthropy that my wife and I do is to focus on global poverty alleviation. If you're keen to save lives and, and that's your, your main yardstick, it's difficult to argue that you will achieve that by only giving money to people in a relatively wealthy country. But I can understand people's desire to uh, assist locally, and certainly that's something that we do in part. And that, I guess, means that I'm not a perfect Peter Singer-like uh, altruism machine. If my main goal was to do the greatest good for the greatest number, regardless of where they're located, then all of my philanthropy would be overseas. As it is, it's most of the philanthropy that our family does, but not all of it. I also have been thinking about how to ensure that the philanthropy that I do supports innovation. I worry that there's too little philanthropic innovation. So exploring ways of supporting organisations that are pushing the envelope a little bit fits well in my worldview. I wrote a book a while called uh, Randomistas, which is about how the randomised trials revolution is creating a whole lot more evidence and shaking up established nostrum. And I'd like to encourage more of that. I'd like to see more philanthropists encouraging high quality innovation and build a better feedback loop as you go. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that one. Andrew, I know you have an interest in the world of online fundraising. I had Tanya Burston, founder of My Cause, on the show recently, and we had a pretty detailed discussion around the ethics in online fundraising and particularly the ethical challenges around being able to police what campaigns come onto crowdfunding sites, for example, who's allowed to post 
whether those interventions or the projects that are being posted are ethical and whose responsibility it is to say whether or not we can fundraise for them. And she highlighted some really good challenges that they're experiencing in that space. Does a fundraising platform take a position on the ethics of an intervention or do they just allow it if it's legal? So it'll be a decision for all fundraising platforms to make themselves, but my natural predisposition would be to have better quality charity evaluation sitting separately from the platforms. I'd love to see an Australian equivalent of givewell.org, which does a deep dive into the impact of the charities that they support. And so, for example, the Against Malaria Foundation ends up top of their list because they've managed to drive down the cost of buying bed nets and they know very rigorously the impact of distribution of bed nets across Africa in terms of saving lives. In terms of the platforms themselves in Australia, clearly if somebody's operating unethically, they shouldn't be supported on those platforms. But the harder question is whether those platforms should exclude some of the less effective charities. To date, I haven't seen it. You know, you think about the platforms which are best known, Raisley, GoFundRaise, Everyday Hero. They've worked because they're very simple to use. And I've used those platforms on raising money, for example, for the Indigenous Marathon Project or I'm doing an event. Very straightforward to go on, set up a page and get going. Their simplicity and their accessibility is really important. The good to give tools, the ability for people just to be able to tap a card as they go into an event and automatically give $5. All those sorts of technological innovations are really valuable. We want to be cautious before constraining uh, which organisations can access them. Yeah, I would argue that those innovations around technology are really valuable in terms of making it easier for us to give. But I also worry that the ease in which we are able to give or engage in the act of doing good actually removes us from accountability and responsibility for the impact of our actions. And it also prevents us from digging deeper into the validity or the effectiveness of the cause that that money is going to. For example, if you tap to give when you're walking into an event or you purchase a pair of shoes online and you can click one extra button and that will send a donation to whoever that retailer's chosen charity is and you get a little rush of doing something good and feeling good in that moment, but you don't know anything about the charity. You're placing your trust in the retailer or the organisation And I worry that that removes and absolves us of the responsibility and creates more distance between our act and the impact of our act. What do you think? What a great pushback. So I suppose in wanting platforms to be accessible for a wide range of charities, I had in mind that if you made it too difficult, if you required people to go through a sort of considered process as to who to give to, people might not give it all and that it was in general better to have some giving to charity and then move people along the path towards having a conversation about charitable effectiveness. But I would like it if more people were thinking more consciously about what to give to. The example of the two burning houses, one has a number of valuable paintings, another one has a family of five. Do you uh, send the fire brigade to hose down the house with the paintings or the family 
most of us say, of course, you should save the family over the paintings, but then many people choose to give to art galleries rather than to save lives in the developing world. I think that effective altruism conversation is really important. I just, I suppose I worry that it might turn people off if that's their first engagement with charity. We know, for example, in the superannuation space, if you make stuff too hard, people just don't engage. So simplicity can be important to improving altruism. But you're right, we want to make sure that we don't oversimplify what it ought to be an important process. Hate to say it, but maybe we should have more of this in the schools. Yeah, and I think it does come down to critical thinking, you know, the ability to look at the options in front of you and make decisions based on on the information that you have and that you need to seek out, you know. And I think that's that convenient side of giving takes that away from us and places the burden of due diligence on the middleman, essentially, whatever that entity is, whether it's a for-profit company, a social enterprise or a charity, there's an expectation from the individual giver that they have done the work, that they are best practice, that they have done the due diligence. And that's not always the case in my experience. In fact, it's not often the case in my experience. Totally, totally. But let me give you another example. Sorry, Lee, just to chime in on that. My wife and I decided last Christmas that we would give an amount of money to each of our three boys, which they could assign across their favourite charity. And we thought it would create a great opportunity for a conversation about which charity they wanted to support. But when we began the conversations, they very quickly got complicated. The boys didn't know whether they wanted to do environmental charities or health charities in Australia or overseas. And so we would have these conversations. We'd start, we wouldn't get anywhere, and then, you know, everyone would go off to bed. And after about six months, we basically said, damn it, this isn't working. We need to just give the kids a short list of charities, get them to pick one and get the money out the door. So our kind of passion for effective altruism had ended up stymieing us. And so we weren't doing anything with those donations six months after Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point. And I think that speaks to a wider issue as people, definitely children, I have children myself, are overwhelmed with the choice, but also the amount of issues that there are that need attention in the world. And it's it's really hard for kids to unpack that. And it's just as hard for adults to do so. But, you know, we do have access to information. There are organisations out there that talk about this. Information is accessible. And I think my position is that we need to take a bit more responsibility for doing the work before we invest in an act of good that has the potential or the capacity to cause significant harm. And going back to your book, you talk about the bushfires in Australia and they caused so much destruction and that resulted in an outpouring of support for communities. And you talk about that and you talk about how actually some of the systems were overwhelmed by the amount of donations or the donations that were coming in that weren't necessarily what was required. And I loved that you touched on that as well. And then you said, we need effective systems to transform this spontaneous altruism into a lasting volunteering ethos, which is wonderful. I think I would take it a step further and talk about the need to examine spontaneous altruism or even altruism itself. Why do we give? Why do we engage in doing good? What is it that motivates us? And how do we harness that in a way that can create impact over time on a particular issue? 
Yeah, that's right. And the improving the quality of the conversation is really vital. You mentioned the bushfires, and I think you probably had in mind, Lee, the uh, Celeste Barber appeal, where she raised $51 million for the New South Wales Regional Fire Service to do work in w- which they legally could not do. And there was a court case which made clear that they still had to get the money, even although it had been raised for a different purpose. That, again, kind of reflected the fact that in the moment, people were simply opening their wallets and weren't spending the time doing the sort of longer-term assessment process that you and I would love it if people did. The challenge is how we make sure that the level of giving doesn't change, but the thoughtfulness and the engagement with the issues improves. I buy the argument that some of the folks at uh, 80,000 Hours make, which is that some charities are plausibly not just three or four times more effective than others, but 10 or 100 times more effective than others for any given cause that you can think about. So that ought to rock you back in your heels. If you were investing in the stock market, you'd run a mile from a company that had a tenth or one hundredth of the returns of, uh, of another firm. Donors should be just as thoughtful about this. And it's unforgivable if philanthropists aren't thinking through this. So I worry that organisations which disperse money to charities aren't demanding a higher level of impact evaluation in order to ensure that that they're doing the most good in the world. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you on that. And I think when you are thinking about partnering with a charity or investing in doing good somehow, you need to apply just as much rigor and resources to the process of understanding that issue and partnering well and doing your due diligence and assessing your impact because it's just as important and it has the capacity to make a huge difference, positive or negative, on the issue that you are trying to support. Absolutely. The role of large organisations in this can be critical because then that sets up a demand for those charities to have more information on their website that goes directly to their impact. And it takes us out of that problematic space of saying effective charities are those that have low administrative costs. I really admire the Sacred Heart Mission in uh, in Victoria, for example, which did a terrific randomised trial of an uh, intensive caseworker support program for long-term homeless people and found that while it improved their sense of well-being, it didn't improve employment outcomes, in large part because these were people who were suffering through such deep disadvantage that moving them into some form of volunteering program was the best you could hope for. You couldn't take somebody off the streets and put them straight into a paid full-time job. That provided some sense of realism and having a rigorous randomized trial around the impact brings great credit on Sacred Heart, I think, for doing that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In the book, you refer to the concept of double plus good, where both the giver and receiver are benefiting. Interestingly, this is another issue that comes up in my work a lot, where we talk about often, in many cases, the benefit to the volunteer or the giver actually outweighs the benefit to the receiver. And I would argue that all giving and volunteering is of benefit to the giver over the receiver as well. What are your thoughts in this? Because mine are that there's not necessarily enough acknowledgement that we benefit from giving. Yeah, the uh, so-called helpers high is, is real and, uh, and that comes through for both volunteers and for donors. With our notion of double plus good social capital, we're thinking 
not only about the way in which giving can benefit the donor, but also about supporting organisations which are doing good in, in multiple different ways. So, for example, we talk about the way in which Suzanne Pauley in the northern beaches of Sydney has uh, repurposed the home meals program for older people with a model in which the person who's bringing the meal stays and shares it. And that provides not only nutrition, but also a sense of social connectedness. We really admire the work that Landcare for Singles does, setting up its singles tree planting events that improve the environment, but also uh, allow for someone to meet the love of their life. So that's another example of double plus good social capital. And in a busy world, opportunities which are ticking two boxes are ones to be admired because people very much like the chance of being able to serve multiple goals. Andrew, I want to loop back around to you and ask you, who has been your greatest influence in doing good? Oh, certainly my folks. My parents are uh, irrepressible internationalists who studied overseas, worked in Southeast Asia, constantly listening to overseas news and, and talking about the problems of the world. And my dad was involved in the volunteer bushfire brigade. My mum's been involved in heritage organisations since they moved to the north of Sydney. Constantly thinking not about themselves as individuals, but about us as uh, members of a community and how we could strengthen that community. So it was a fabulous household to grow up in, not just intellectually, but also socially. And it's meant that my brother and I are very much part of sporting clubs and community organisations and looking at how to get to know our neighbours. If you want one tip for building social capital in December, you should hold a street party, particularly as the COVID restrictions lift. Street parties are a lovely way of just getting to know your neighbours. Letterbox the street, say that everyone should come around to your house for an hour on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. BYO ensures that you don't have to cater for the entire street and you'll boost the social capital of your, uh, your neighbourhood for the next year. It's a very simple thing to organise and one that pays dividends in terms of everything from happiness to community safety. I love that idea. Three years ago, I moved to a small ish town in regional Victoria from Melbourne. I have to say through COVID, I've really, really appreciated being in a small town and a small, you know, having that sense of community around me that I feel that I perhaps might not have had being in Melbourne. So yes, I love that idea of the barbecue or the gathering. <laughs> yes, and it naturally exists in regional areas, Lee, but there's no reason we can't build it in the cities as well. Australians know half as many of our neighbours as we did in 1985 when the TV show Neighbours first aired. People say they want to know their neighbours better. Australians, when they're surveyed, say that they've met their neighbours, but they can't remember their name. Here's an easy way to work it out. Have a street party, ask everyone their names, and you'll be a more connected street. Mm. Bit of a philosophical question now. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? I'm torn between focusing on, let me just give you two. One is the we versus me problem. Australia, a generation ago, was much more of a collectivist we nation. We had smaller gaps between rich and poor, and we were more civically connected. Since then, Inequality has risen, the gap between the corner office and the factory floor has widened, and community life has waned. We have half as many friends as we did a generation ago. That movement from a we society to a me society has meant that we're less happy than we would otherwise be, and also less egalitarian. But 
sitting alongside that is the existential risk of climate change, which it's difficult to stack much up against climate change. So I would love to see us not only becoming a more connected society, but also reducing our carbon footprint. Because if Australia leads on this, it's going to be much easier for us to encourage other nations to do likewise. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I have a T-shirt, kindness is not weakness. So I think if I could put one slogan on a billboard, it would be that. It's too easy, particularly for blokes, to think that being glib or cruel is somehow a show of strength. But in fact, the strongest people who I admire are those who are constantly kind to those around them. I love that. I want that (laughs) T-shirt. Andrew, where is your favourite place on earth? With my family. If you're on your own, then you miss out on so much of what it is to enjoy life. Uh, It was Aristotle who said that uh, society preceded the individual. When you're at a funeral and you hear people talking about their favourite aspects of the deceased, it's always about the stories they told and, and how they made others feel. But being in nature is pretty special as well. So to combine being with Gwyneth and our three little boys somewhere in the bush, I think it'd be my ideal. That old uh, E.O. Wilson notion of biophilia, that we're at our best and our happiest and our healthiest when we're in nature. Mm, Beautiful. Andrew, what book are you reading right now? I'm reading uh, David McCulloch's biography of Truman. It's been around for ages and it sort of stared at me for a while and I haven't, got, I haven't gotten to it. So finally I got the audio book and I've been so-called reading it on my runs. I love the way in which uh, Truman is somebody who is endlessly approachable. First birthday in the White House, the White House chef bakes him a cake and he goes into the kitchen to say thanks And the chef says, oh, you're the first president who's come into the White House kitchen in 20 years. And Truman says, oh, that's surprising. I I thought FDR would be warm to you. And the chef says, well, yeah, FDR was always friendly, but I never felt he really understood me. With you, I feel you understand me. You get what I am. So that notion from Truman of being somebody who makes monumental decisions, you know, the peace conferences in Yalta, the uh, decisions about post-war reconstruction, but does so from a platform of feeling empathy and sympathy for everyone around him. That's pretty impressive in a leader. Yeah, yeah. What about podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? David McCulloch is, is pausing me from podcasts for a moment, but I do love Freakonomics, which I think is beautifully put together. Really admire the Radio Lab folks. I enjoy Joe Walker's podcast, Jolly Swagman, and really uh, just appreciate the eclecticism of podcasts, the, uh, the way in which you can listen to a science podcast and come home knowing things about bats that you never thought you even wanted to know. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day about these little polar moss balls which move around in systematic ways. They're almost like animals. They move about an inch a day. So you uh, feel as though there is more knowledge in the world than you could possibly imagine when you listen to quirky podcasts. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Andrew, it's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. I've loved debating and digging into some of these topics with you. It's totally the thing that gets me going. (laughs) I loved your book. Can you tell our listeners where to find your book and also where to find you? 
So as a politician, I'm not difficult to find. I have a website, the modestly named andrewlee.com. I'm on Twitter as MP and Facebook as Andrew Lee MP. As you said, Lee, I've got my own podcast, The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, and I'll send out a, a monthly email update. So anyone who wants to sign up can just pop on the website and sign up for that dose of email goodness popping in your inbox once a month. The book is uh, Reconnected, a community builder's handbook co-authored with Nick Terrell. Should be in every bookstore. And if it's not, then you should ask them why not and insist that they bring in a copy, not just for you, but for a dozen of your friends. But you can also <laughs> find it on the Black Ink website. Excellent. Thank you, Andrew. Real pleasure, Lee. I'm going to be thinking about your effective altruism questions all day. Thank you for prompting and stretching that conversation. <laughs> This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of the Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.